Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is the Roy Green Show podcast. We're going to begin with this language. And I remember thinking a couple of years ago when uh, the issue of hurting somebody's feelings and finding yourself in front of a human rights tribunal was first talked about. And I I remember saying on the air something like, you know, somebody's going to say something to someone else or about someone else and use language they may not even think is offensive, but it is offensive to that person. And so you'll find yourself potentially in front of a human rights tribunal defending language that you used that you didn't really think was an issue. So, you know, offensive language in some ways is a moving target. Now, Phil Jackson, New York Knicks president, NBA star player, and coach of the uh, 11 NBA championship teams who coached Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, Shaquille O'Neal, and Kobe Bryant, among other stars, used the term posse to describe LeBron James' entourage in an interview with ESPN. And the group included Bryant's agent and business manager, And Phil Jackson has been heavily criticized, heavily criticized for using the word posse. Uh, One player, one one superstar player has come to his his aid, and that's Magic Johnson. But um, LeBron said about, about Phil Jackson that he'd had respect for him as a coach, while now he's, quote, got nothing for him. All right, language. I want to talk to you about that, but first we have Ron Miller joining us, African-American Assistant Dean at Liberty University and the author of Sellout, Musings from Uncle Tom's Porch. Ron'sReflections.com is the website. And uh, Ron is kind enough to give us a fair bit of his time on weekends. Hi, Ron. How are you today? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. It's Sunday, and I'm relaxing, as it's wont to do on a Sabbath. And, And here I am disturbing you. No, that's always a pleasure. <laughs> Our good friend Mark Yost, who writes on the business of sport for the Wall Street Journal. He's the author of Varsity Green and many other sports books and uh, and, and uh, adventure and crime books. You'll find them at uh, under his name, Mark Yost, at Amazon.com. Yosty, how are you? Good morning, sir. Good day, sir. Good morning for you in Chicago, or no, it's afternoon there. Well, already, it's it? afternoon, but... Uh, Whatever. Just, just, no. Whatever. Anyway. Uh, look, let me start with uh, with with you, Ron. You and I are of, uh, I think, this sort of the same vintage. Um, Mark is a little bit younger. Would it have immediately have occurred to you that the use of the word posse would be inappropriate? And I, I mean, I don't travel in professional sports circles, but I've heard that word used all my life. And I must confess, I might not have thought of it as being an offensive word simply because it's been around so long. What about you, Ron? Well, I can remember when Posse used to describe the uh, group in the old westerns that used to go out and, in, and dispense justice. So that's that's how dated my uh, reference Well, exactly. I mean, that's you know, I remember the sheriff would gather the Posse around him, and the Posse would go after the, the bad guys. 
right. But um, language is a moving target, particularly the English language. And um, I know that at some point, posse became associated with uh, groups of people of like-mindedness gathered together. Um, and it became a very popular um, a term to use to describe your uh, friends and associates that uh, hung out with you for whatever reason. Um, you know, you mentioned you use the term entourage, and if you think of the uh, television program and the movie Entourage, uh, that grouping would would more likely not be called a posse. Um, but again, I don't think that I ever imagined that there would be a negative connotation associated with it. But as I've listened to the debate go back and forth and, and done a little bit of research, I, I think I, I understand it. I don't know if I, if I agree with it or not, but I understand some of the reasons why they took offense. Yeah, I do too. But at the same time, I, had, I wouldn't have known, and I hear you saying, I think, Ron, that you might have given an interview, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you might have given an interview at some point and used the word posse, in uh, conjunction with someone and uh, their associates, not ever thinking you were causing any offense. Yep, that's true. Mark, uh, you're the sports guy. Uh, <laughs> take over, please. Well, uh, you guys hit all the right notes. I mean, first of all, I would point out that posse is so passe that no one really uses it anymore. In fact, I, I tried to contact my young son, who... Roy, you know, is serving in the Marine Corps, and, and I couldn't get a hold of them. But, I, you know, I wanted to ask him, I, I mean, what, what's the word for posse these days? Because, uh, as you two said, you know, it's, the language is ever-evolving. And uh, so, but, but the point is, posse is passe. My, my bigger concern with this is that it is kind of much ado about nothing. Yes, we should try to understand if somebody's offended by it. But, as you know, Roy, I have made a career. I've written books about the, the social, cultural problems affecting professional and college athletics. And this is so far down the chain, uh, the use of this word, that I worry that it distracts. It's sort of like crying wolf, that when we do try to address serious issues of domestic violence, serious issues of, of campus rape, which is a real issue at, at, on some campuses, that, that people hear that and they, 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 they look at this, this posse thing and then they hear about a real issue and they go, oh, come on, this is just another. And, 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 it's, and I worry that, that posse is so trivial that it distracts from the real issues that college and professional athletics have to face. I'm speaking with Ron Miller, assistant dean at Liberty University. He's the author of Sellout, Musings from Uncle Tom's Porch. African-American, former um, U.S. Air Force member. Um, Mark Yost writes on the business of sport for the Wall Street Journal and uh, Sports Illustrated and other publications. He's the author of sports books, including Varsity Green, and we're talking about the use of language. When we get to the point where it offends somebody and the story that's been talked about uh, from coast to coast to coast all over North America has been uh, Phil Jackson, the 11-time NBA championship team coach and former player who uh, used the word posse to describe LeBron James' entourage in an interview with ESPN. So, um, Mark, you said that we focus on, on issues like this, and it takes away from the, or can take away, from the significance of major issues that happen on in, in the world of sports, whether it's professional or college sports. 
fair point. But what do we do about what do we do about how do we establish for ourselves to the satisfaction of others because that's what it boils down to. How do we establish for ourselves to the satisfaction of others where the line is that we can't cross linguistically without upsetting somebody? Well, and, and, I, and I think Ron made the right point that when, when we're kind of caught off guard by a word like this that is, is uh, questionable, so to speak, you and I certainly didn't think it was offensive and a lot of other people... No, and some words clearly are offensive. Right, and I, and I, and I think... I, and, and that's really the elephant in the room. You know, uh, forget about posse for a second. Um, uh, I've been in a lot of professional locker rooms, particularly the NBA and the NFL, and, and the N-word continues to be thrown around quite regularly by black athletes. And, and that's a word that there should be no debate about. And I know there's been much debate about it. Uh, some blacks have said, well, we embrace that word because it was a word that was used to oppress us and it's part of our history and that. But, but you know, I think it's a word that we can all <laughs> agree shouldn't be used, should never be used. And uh, uh, so I, I, th- I, I think, again, posse, I, okay, fine, somebody was offended by it, but I really think there's bigger fish to fry. No, I agree. Culture. Absolutely Con- uh, concur. Uh, Ron, there have been so many uh, so many shows I've heard on uh, particularly American sports radio, and uh, so many columns have been written. In, uh, I'm looking at one from Time magazine. They're all over the place about this use of the word posse. And universally, Phil Jackson has been, almost universally, has been denounced as somebody who should have known better, which brings us back full circle. The three of us might not have known using the word posse in that context would have been offensive to uh, to uh, to LeBron James. What about uh, what about your students if if we were to run this past um, a class of your students at Liberty University how would they respond do you think? I think a lot of them would probably react a little with a little bit of puzzlement. Um, but I think it really depends on the, your cultural context. Um, one of the things I think I'm picking up on as I as I hear people debate this word is that the 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 word may not have a, a racial connotation necessarily. Although some people say you wouldn't use the same word to describe a white entourage, but it may have be considered condescending given the role that this uh, grouping of LeBron James's associates plays in his in his life. Uh, one of them being his agent, the other being a business manager. Um, to LeBron, he saw this as an opportunity to take people that he knew from his childhood and to give them opportunities to grow as as men and as people involved in in business and other things. So to him, he see he sees it as a mentor. Uh, protege relationship that has yielded fruit for them and given, uh, uh, I guess, hope, if you will, to what young black men can achieve. So in his mind, this is an association that has a great deal of cultural and personal value. Posse seems to make it seem just casual. Um, You might recall when Michael Vick got in trouble for the dogfighting episodes um, a lot of people said that the reasoning behind it was because he hang, was hanging out with the wrong posse, you know. And so, 
I guess when you talk about it, it's kind of unfortunate, but I think the culture gets to the, the people who are offended in some respects get to decide, and we just have to be uh, more adept at figuring out what it is that uh, that might cross that line, and that's obviously not easy to do. No, it's not. I mean, if you, you, if you think about everyday words that, that you've been using since a kid, and you, you, you use automatically when, when a certain situation pops up in your life, it's a descriptor, you use it. You don't ever consider it to be uh, insulting or challenging or, or downputting in any way. I don't know how we move forward. I, I don't know. You know, again, it's a moving target. How do we decide what we can say? It's 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 becoming complicated, too complicated, I think. But well, guys, but, you know. but Roy, can, can I ask you a question? And that's that I started off this by saying that posse is now passe. Right. It, it, people don't really use it that much. So the question I would have is, why is this a question now? Why wasn't posse a, a cultural question when it was used by everybody three or four years ago or five years ago, whenever it was at the height of its popularity? It was a term that was used, as, 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 as you guys have said, that, you know, mean, mean a group of yeah. friends. Mark, I've got about 30 friends. seconds. Yeah. Yeah. So, but why is this question coming up now? Why is this an issue? Well, I, I don't know, but it is. Because I'm still confused about the, the, the word being objectionable, I, 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 because in, I wouldn't use it now in, in some contexts, but I, that I would have used, would have used it a week ago. But anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm confused about where my language is going. Ron Miller, Mark Yost, thank you so much, guys, for joining me. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Don't know if you've heard that there are now support and counseling groups for young children traumatized by Trump's victory. Show me a kid who even knows who Trump is. Um, Maybe referencing the American Academy of Pediatrics, and they represent more than 60,000 pediatricians. And in an email sent out, and I'm quoting the Daily Caller here, to members a few days after Trump's surprising election victory, AAP CEO Karen Remley discussed the disturbing rhetoric following the election and how pediatricians can help their children. And uh, so they've posted this recommendation on uh, to parents about Donald Trump's election victory so they can avoid, they the kids, can avoid long-term psychological trauma from it. Several, at least several members of the American Academy of Pediatrics quit the organization because of that uh, email. What else do we have here? I'm going to talk to my guest in a second. Protesters against Donald Trump as president-elect of the United States. I have to say this. Many I've seen and heard interviewed by media asking goofy questions are inarticulate graduates of an education system which has constantly enforced the notion that they are special and which awarded trophies just for participating, would not give zeros for work not handed in, and who've had... Well, they've had to make uh, life interesting for any teacher or professor who would have the temerity to judge their work as being worthy of only of a failing grade. Remember the uh, McGill University history professor who told us he gets calls at 3 o'clock in the morning from disgruntled students? How could you fail me? I attended some of your classes. I deserve at least a B plus. So uh, I've heard them chatter on and on about how Donald Trump's election is immoral, illegal, and an affront to democracy. Do they vote? No. Do they have the slightest notion how the U.S. electoral system works? Some do. Some are clueless. These were likely the most noisy individuals who shouted that Donald Trump saying he would let you know if he would agree with the election results was alarming. 
Now it is they who refuse to acknowledge and confirm the results of a democratic election. They shout about tolerance while a fellow student wearing a Donald Trump Make America Great Again hat is assaulted. It's funny, eh? It's how the synapses oh, don't quite connect in some people's brains. Joining me to speak to this phenomenon is University of Saskatchewan Professor Ken Coates. He's the co-author of many great books. Um, one is, oh, I like this one. It's uh, about universities and the overselling that is taking place by many post-secondary education institutions concerning what a university degree will mean to your life. The book is titled Dream Factories, and if you have a child about to enter university, or if you're in university, or a graduate of a university that perhaps, well, provided you with a degree that's, I don't know, essentially a useless piece of paper, gathering dust on a wall, you want to read Dream Factories. Professor Coates, it's good to talk to you again. Always good to be with you. And I'm sorry to take so much time rattling on with my point of view. <laughs> but media ask idiotic questions. They should confront these students with questions like, do you have a career? Do you have a job? For those who proudly answer no and no, and I've heard that, the comeback from the media interviewer should be, you know, there are jobs available at the fast food store down the road where you could be earning a wage. Why don't you go and apply? Ken, what do you make of what's going on? What do you make of the, you know, the, at, at, uh, at Cornell University, they had a campus cry-in. Uh, Michigan University, uh, Michigan State provided healing spaces including the aid of professional counselors, because Trump won. What's going on? Well, we're, we're living in an age where we like to coddle young people. Um, we, we think they're kind of delicate, delicate creatures and, and can't sort of deal with life's challenges. I think a lot of those things are quite silly, uh, to be honest. Um, there's no question that some people are traumatized by life events and they need to have counseling and support. Um, I think we do this kind of thing quite often um, in Canada when there's a a death of a student in the high school when there's a fire or a disaster or whatever we we now do bring uh, counselors in fairly fairly quickly i think the situation with the trump one though has really exposed the um sort of liberal nature of universities uh, their high expectations that the barack obama administration would continue through in the clinton years and their their absolute horror at the idea of donald trump being the, the president of the united states um, but I think the other side of this is, you know, let's have a proper debate about all these things. Let's let's respond to Donald Trump's ideas as he becomes president and takes them into action. Let's do all the things that are legitimate within the political process. But I think we can get carried away too quickly on on thinking this is going to be a terribly traumatic event for individuals. And it, 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 it was the conclusion of the democratic process that seemed to take forever. It's called the election. Well, exactly. And I think what happened there is, you know, um, whenever... Uh, the results traumatized a lot of Democrats who expected something very different. Uh, they were very upset that the usual things didn't work. Um, celebrity endorsements, the expenditure of huge amounts of money on advertising, an extremely well-organized ground game. If you look at what the Democrats did, they did all the things that politicians for the last 30 years have said will guarantee you the presidency. They did all those things, and they still lost. And I think one of the biggest challenges is that what Donald Trump has presented to all of us is we don't really know how public opinion is being formed. We don't know how people are making their decisions um, on these political processes. Um, and we do realize, I think increasingly, that a lot of people in the United States and in Canada do not have a terribly deep understanding of political processes. Um, so, you know, yes, uh, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote, um, but that's not how the decision was made. Everybody knew going in that the Electoral College would make the decision. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's, how, that's simply how it goes. 
Um, so it's kind of, you know, it's not unusual. Losers like to sort of find explanations. They like to sort of blame the system. Mr. Trump made it quite clear he was going to do the same thing if he lost. And he kept talking about a rigged election. So to be honest, the American election did not sort of reflect well on anybody in the, in the larger process. Um, and I think Canadians have to sort of look down and think um, we had our, our last election was handled much better than this one. Well, yeah, it wasn't. It, it certainly had its bumpy moments, but we get them over with fairly quickly. We don't allow sores to form and fester over a period of, of two years. And by the time you get to the final day, you can't remember what the issue was when it all began. <laughs> well, it is, a, it is a function of the sort of modern electoral process. And one of the challenges, go back to your questions before about the sort of young people. Um, one of the interesting things now is we're increasingly finding that young people are not terribly engaged with the news. Uh, everybody talks about how they read the news online rather than through buying regular newspapers. I, I suspect that's not as true as people like to think. What they do is they share around individual stories. And those stories are often sensational, often misleading, often one-sided. And we have a much broader question here, two much broader questions. One is how do we how do we form and create public opinion in a world of social media and sort of you know, the Internet gone amok in one, in one sense? And the second one, how do we engage young people in a political process that, quite frankly, is baffling to a lot of us? Um, and so we've, we've got a real challenge going forward. And I think, you know, getting young people involved in a knowledgeable and informed way in the political process is absolutely central. Uh, not because then when they're 60, I'm not a fan of people at the age of 16 being given the right to vote. I think 18 or 19 is fine. Um, but we do need to get them understanding what's actually going on. And one of the things that's interesting, you're talking about the fact that you know, people not not discussing the Trump election very much. You know, my hometown is Saskatoon. Um, in fact, young people were talking about it a lot, um, and particularly around the issues of sort of the way that uh, Trump was portrayed as his attitudes toward women and abortion and things like that. And, and what I found really fascinating is, in fact, the conversation was much more intense than about Canadian elections. Uh, that, in fact, they were more knowledgeable about the, the main issues in the United States than they were about the main issues in Canadian politics. So we have a real challenge. If we're going to have an informed electorate who make good decisions and push our politicians in the right way, we better figure out how to talk to young people and how to use social media in a far more constructive manner. I agree. Um, but th- that having been said, and your book is called Dream Factories, and it places responsibility on the universities to not oversell what they're going to uh, deliver, what is the university's responsibility in a situation like this where you have almost, maybe I'm overstating, but you have a significant percentage of a generation in distress over the election of the next president of the United States? What's the university's responsibility leading up and then post-election? Well, it's interesting. Leading up to the election, universities have a huge obligation to provide a forum for debate and conversation. Uh, in fact, to explain the political process, we actually had at the University of Saskatchewan two different public forums to explain how the U.S. electoral system worked, um, basically to give young people and students and faculty a chance to sort of talk about it ahead of time. Universities across North America and around the world should be doing this. They should have those things ahead of time to prepare people to frame the questions and get a sense of what's going on. Universities also, and the research on this is overwhelming, are very liberal places, which the United States shows up as, as democratic. Um, and, and so they don't necessarily create a very one-sided environment. And when you add in the sort of the concern around political correctness, the self-censorship where people who have strong views that might be opposed to Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton basically keep their mouths shut, uh, don't talk up in public, or when people who do speak up get sort of criticized and shut down, um, we end up with a situation where the universities are not the forum for open debate they should be. 
And afterwards, the conversation should be about the fact that societies actually move forward in a fairly conservative way. We can have radical changes in political leadership that don't all, don't they don't destroy the foundations of a of a society and a government overnight. They, in fact, perhaps move the ship very so ever so small in so small ways in a, in a different direction. But they don't just uproot society. And we should be basically talking about the the traditions. Donald Trump is president of the United States. He has a uh, Congress and he has a, a Supreme Court and and he has a, a Senate that actually are going to make judgments and control him in different sorts of ways. He's going to try to influence them. Um, this is how societies work. And in fact, you know, one of the things we should be talking about is is what is actually going on. What's the unease about? Because I tell you this, I think in, in we we saw what was going on in the United States with Donald Trump and sort of reaching out to the to the uh, you know, working class white population for the most part, um, the working class people generally. Uh, we're hearing signs of this in Canada as well. And what we need to do is instead of getting mad at people and labeling, I think Hillary Clinton made a massive error when she referred to some of Donald Trump's supporters as deplorable. Absolutely, it was a terrible, terrible slip in judgment. Um, we need to listen to what's going on in those people's lives and be far more sympathetic. When you see people in Port McMurray, hundreds of uh, hundred thousand people in the oil patch losing their jobs, these are real life things. Yeah. And across the United States, the working class people are losing losing jobs. The young people come to universities think they're going to get great jobs with high incomes and then don't get them. Yeah. So they're traumatized. Their parents are upset. Let's start talking openly about the world we're going into. Because quite frankly, it isn't the 1980s or 1990s. It's where we should be planning for the 2020s. And they're not going to look at all like what they did 25 years ago. Yeah, no, it's so true. And the young people uh, in the university settings and adding into university see what's happening to their parents and hear the stories from their grandparents. There's a lot to be done. I mean, fair enough, be upset about Donald Trump if you wish. But I remember Barack Obama associated with a convicted terrorist whose terror organization was responsible for death, William Ayers, who became a a professor at the University of Chicago and a close friend of uh, the president and visited at the White House. I mean, there's always something going on, particularly in our neighbor to the south. Professor Coates, it's always great talking to you, and I thank you so much for the time today. Anytime you like. Take care. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. So we've talked about hydro rates and electricity rates and where they're going on this program quite a bit. And uh, there's a lot of anger, a lot of frustration, and a lot of fear as far as uh, hydro and electricity rates are concerned. And the premier and her ministers and the uh, liberal MPPs have all heard about it. And now Kathleen Wynne at at a meeting of the Liberal Party in Ottawa said she made a mistake on the hydro rates, on the electricity prices. And the people may think she isn't listening to them. Wow. Maybe while they're agonizing over whether they can afford the skyrocketing electricity bills and the rent to keep a roof over their heads and those of their children and and food on the table, Premier, but they know they cannot afford all three simultaneously. The Ontario Auditor General last year reported the Liberal government's management of the electricity system has been and will continue to be a disaster. The government made decisions on and overruled the required by law long-term plan for electricity, making decisions by, to quote the Globe and Mail. Because of the uh, prices of electricity for both business and consumers, because of this, they leapt 70% between 2006 and 2014. When you see global adjustment fees, the AG, Auditor General, reported, um, also the Liberals have for the past decade paid more than the market price to power generating companies in order for them to operate in the province. Those fees totaled $37 billion between 2006 and 14, 
and the projection is they'll add an additional $133 billion from last year to 2032. Who's going to pay that money? You and your kids as they become adult taxpayers. The government insists it acted appropriately to do away with unwieldy long-term plans from the Ontario Power Authority and some of the costs were to end the use of coal-fired power. The Auditor General, though, reported the government paid too much for green power compared to the U.S., two to three times as much for wind and solar. You can read Professor Ross McKittrick's columns in the Financial Post for more information on the mess. Ontario now bears the largest non-sovereign debt, I think, in the world. So uh, a couple of months ago, we spoke with Francesca Dobbin, who is the executive director of the United Way, <clears throat> excuse me, in Bruce Gray County. And uh, I, I like Francesca Dobbin because she calls it the way it is. And she's back on the air with us. Francesca, thank you so much. It was short notice. I do appreciate you coming on. Oh, there's nothing like a Twitter reach out on a Sunday morning. Isn't there? I heard from you right away. I thought, this is terrific. I want to talk to you again because it's of such an important, important issue. Um, share with us, please. Well, first of all, what do you, what do you make of what the Premier said? Um, I've long suspicious been suspicious that she wasn't getting the right information. Um, and that all the you know issues and the talking and the meetings and everything was all about a very small group of people that were just really extremely low income, and you know as with all things, all stressors in life, the low income suffer the most. So I have a feeling that she wasn't getting the information on the grand scale of things, and was making decisions you know all about the system without understanding the people side of the system. And the people's side of the system, I'm not willing to let the Premier off the hook that easily. It's her, it's her job. It's her responsibility because she's the final arbiter of decision-making in Ontario. But I was absolutely, <clears throat> excuse me, I was uh, so concerned about what I heard about Bruce Gray County and then heard from you. And I quoted to you a story when we talked last from February 2014, and it was a CTV news story. And it talks about people who cannot afford the... Um, the uh, the heat, the fuel to keep their furnaces running, and uh, and the United Way would step in to help as you could, and it says Francesca Dobbin with the United Way, Grace Bruce says 42 families are in crisis situation in Gray and Bruce counties. She says 26 have no fuel at all, and there's no money to buy it. Some even had their electricity disconnected until payment plans could be arranged through community supports like the United Way, social services, and local food banks. Tell us, please. What is what's going on on the ground? What's happening to the to the rural people uh, with all of these spikes in electricity prices? What what's life like? Um, life is life is really hard. Um, it's it's always a decision: heat or eat. Um, people are unscrewing, unplugging, blocking off, um, being you know terrorized by their hydro bill. Um, I know people who have a shredder by their front door and they just shred it. And uh, because they just can't deal with it, uh, they pay what they can, and then you know when it gets escalated, then they reach out to the support systems in the community. It's a constant stressor. People are making decisions. We I, I spent Monday last week doing research on hot water tank safety because I saw over the weekend people talking about timers, and I put my hot water timer uh, hot water tank on a timer so it only turns on just before I need a shower and to do the dishes at the end of the day. And then I turn it off, and I'm thinking, um, Legionnaires, hello. Um, so we did a, a sheet that's up on our Facebook page and on our website 
of safety tips around doing things like that and talked to the safety, the Canadian Safety Council, and they're like, yeah, no, don't do that. You, yeah, in fact, you, you posted uh, something on, on uh, Twitter to me, and I reposted it, and it's from Spain, and it's the anger in Spain over the deaths of two people, particularly an 81-year-old woman whose electricity had been cut off, again, because of spiking hydro uh, rates in, in that country, uh, and she had been lighting, or at least providing light for herself with a candle and had fallen asleep, and the predictable happened. The candle set fire to her home, and she died, and a 12-year-old girl. Um, died because a, a space heater was uh, the the, uh, the the cord in it was was faulty and the little girl died and people in Spain are absolutely uh, outraged. So none of this needed to happen. No, and it's interesting with the Spanish piece that um, they have legislation rules that say that before you cut somebody off, you have to connect. They, the utility, has to connect with a social agency. So in theory, if we had such a rule, Hydro One would have to call me and say, we're going to go cut off Bob Smith's house. And I'd be like, oh, no, you're not, because I'm going to do this instead. Um, and they're holding those utilities' feet to the fire, <laughs> pardon, um, to say, did you do this? Did you call those social agencies? And I spend so much of my day making sure that Hydro One follows the rules that the OEB knows me by name. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, they're not following the rules. This didn't happen. You know, this is the disconnection policy. Yes, they can, you know, the security deposit has to be applied against your outstanding bill. I don't care that they say they don't want to do that. Hydro One has to do that. And I spend so much of my time chasing their rules with and informing the public that they have protections out there from these situations, and if just the hydro companies would follow their rules, that would be half a battle. So you have people who have their hydro turned off like that. Yeah. Just gone. Gone. Gone at the pole. And it could be February, could be January, could be minus 30, gone. Um, I will say um, Hydro One and Unigas don't disconnect December 1st to uh, March 31st. So we're dealing with a Hydro One right now who is um, trying to collect on its outstanding debt before um, the December 1st mm-hmm. kicks in. We have um, companies, um, smaller companies that do disconnect. West Aerial Power in Bruce Gray Region will and does disconnect. Um, you know, they say regardless of the weather, but <laughs> I've seen it otherwise. Um, Bill 27, which is before the legislature, will give power to the OEB to make those decisions. So we've been having conversations with the OEB um, about that legislation. What are you going to do? And they really haven't started thinking about it yet. So we've been kind of pushing them to start thinking about it. Um, Are you worried that, and I don't want to overemphasize here or try to be spectacular for the case of being spectacular, but I'm looking back at the story from 2014 where there was concern that people would die. Do you have concerns about that? Always. Uh, we, we had a death on a First Nation from a gentleman whose generator exploded. Um, you know, I've got another person in our community over the weekend that's just been disconnected, um, and we've been just playing um, message tag, and I don't have the whole picture yet, um, is running around. Uh, people are burning substandard wood, you know, chimney fires. You know, we've had those before from people who are trying to save money, and they don't burn the right kind of wood. Um, you know, the whole candle thing, uh, bringing a heater inside and it's the wrong kind of heater, um, all of those things. We need people to make sure that their smoke detectors are, are battery operated, not wired in. Otherwise, you know, what happens when your power goes out um, because it's been cut off and you're burning things that you shouldn't and, and you're worried about carbon monoxide and all of those things. And, you know, the, the LEAP program 
give six, you know, five hundred dollars uh, if you're not electrically heated, and six hundred if you are dependent on electricity for heat. Well, if you're running propane and natural gas, you're dependent on electricity because without electricity, those furnaces will not work. You know, wood heat's about the only thing you can survive on. This is so scary. It's it's very scary. Really people scary. are making these incredible, incredible decisions, and and we're doing the best that we can, but we're way under resourced on these files, and it's just getting really hard uh, to find uh, the energy, the time, and certainly the money. Um, you know, we have so little money to deal with this. Uh, it's it's not funny at all. This is people's lives we're talking about. Well, we're putting price tags on people's lives. There we are, exactly. You know, exactly, we, we well said. a case about five or six years ago where uh, they had a very high-needs, uh, special-needs child who you know, was on life support, life-sustaining equipment. And the mom called me just absolutely freaking out because she had a disconnect notice for Monday. And they'd have to admit the child to the hospital, and the hospital was prepared to take the child. And it's like, are, are you kidding me? It's cheaper to put him in a hospital than to help his family pay this bill. And we helped the family pay the bill, and everything was fine. You know, I said it many times. You can't outthink those who aren't thinking. No, and, and I is, think that's This is really terrifying stuff. Is, is finally somebody has sat down with her and said, this is what is going on. And, you know, we've been sending story after story after story into, yeah. you know, through the Ministry of Energy, through our contacts that we've been able to make and go, you know, this is what was at my door today. You know, this is inappropriate here. Um, you know, oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I, you know, I'll say it because I believe it. It's it's when an agenda takes over from caring. And I, I think that's what's happened with, with this government and the previous government of the province of Ontario. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Back to what the Premier had to say. Premier Wynn admitting a mistake. The electricity bills piling up for people who can't afford them now. Have to choose between turning the lights on and eating. Here's a quote from the Premier. People have told me that they've had to choose between paying the electricity bill and buying food or paying rent. That is unacceptable to me, said the Premier. It is unacceptable that people in Ontario are facing that choice. Our government made a mistake. It was my mistake. An 8% rebate on electricity bills comes into effect January 1, but Wynne said she'll find more ways to lower rates and reduce the burden on consumers. Also January 1, it's cap-and-trade time where you're heating bill will go up and the cost of gasoline will go up. That's my interjection. That's not the Premier talking. McLean's goes on after her speech. Wynne wouldn't point to specific decisions on the electricity file that she deems a mistake, but said her focus was on the big issues facing the system and she hasn't always paid enough attention to how costs were accumulating on people's bills. You have a computer, Premier? Give me a call. I'll tell you how to Google. CBC story, September 12, 2016. Annette Riley dreads opening her hydro bills each month, afraid it means she'll have to have trouble putting food on the table for her two kids. She's one of thousands in Windsor, Essex, and across Ontario who say they can't cope with hydro costs in the province. Quote, it's a struggle every day, Riley said. I just dread getting the hydro bill in the mail every month. I just get caught up, and then I have another bill I need to pay. I just try to get ahead, and I can't. Windsor West MPP Lisa Gretzky plans to present hundreds of hydro bills to Premier Kathleen Wynne 
and Energy Minister Glenn Tebow to illustrate this problem when the Ontario legislature resumes this week. This is from September. For Riley, her average hydro bill comes in between $320 and $350 per month. That translates to roughly $4,000 per year. Just to turn on the lights, use the air conditioning in the summer, and heat the home in the winter. And she concludes by saying, as a mom of two, it's either pay my hydro bill or put food on the table. I have to pick and choose each month. Some mistake, Premier Wynn, some mistake. Francesca Dobbin, Executive Director of United Way in Bruce Gray County, is with me. This, this is so disturbing, Francesca. It's, I mean, I, I do a lot of shows, and you try to be... You try to keep your eye on the ball of the issue, and you try to, you know, you talk about it with your callers, with your guests, and and you have some fun sometimes, and have some anger sometimes. This just breaks my heart. Reading that just breaks my heart, and you deal with it every day. Yes. Every day. Yes. And and I've talked to reporters who are showing signs because they've been covering this so much of of what we call vicarious trauma because. They're going out in the field. They're talking to people on a day-to-day basis. They're in their homes. They see how they're living, and they're not in Haiti after an earthquake, and they're not in the third-world country in Africa. They are in Canada in a community, in a first world, where we're supposed to care, where we're supposed to look after each other and have each other's back. And, and when you get a job and you work hard, when you come home at the end of the day, you should be able to, you know, go and make supper at 5 o'clock, not wait till 7. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Our Premier Kathleen Wynne is calling uh, high electricity prices her mistake. Her mistake. I think that people look at me and many of them think she's not who we thought she was. She's become a, politi- a typical politician. She'll do anything to win. Frankly, I may have, and I think I sometimes have given them reason to think that. So we're talking about the struggle that particularly those who are economically in difficulty are having just paying their hydro bills, putting food on the table, and choosing between the two in Ontario. Here's something from the Daily Mail. I read this to you before. I just want to read a couple of lines from it. More than 2,700 people are dying each year in England and Wales because they cannot afford to keep their homes warm, according to an official study. The spiraling cost of gas and electricity combined with the impact of green taxes is putting health and lives at risk. The study concluded that green taxes on household power bills are regressive and have a disproportionate impact on poorer households. It goes on. Another story from the UK. Three in five elderly people will ration their heating this winter amid fears over high energy bills. As many as two of five, 42%, said they would also consider cutting back on food in order to meet the cost of heating their homes. A survey of 2,000 people aged 65 and over found nearly half, 46%, feared the cold snap would increase their bills. 54% worried their income or pension would not be enough to cover the cost, and a fifth admitted they would have to use their saving or credit, 61% admitted they cut down on energy during the use, uh, during the winter. Francesca Dobbin is with me, Executive Director of the United Way in uh, Bruce Gray County in Ontario. Does all, does, that's from the UK. Does that sound familiar to you, for Francesca? Yes. 
Yes, and we're very much paying attention to what's happening in Europe. I mean, I'm British by birth myself, so definitely paying attention to that. And, uh, you know, a lot of the austerity measures that Britain brought in were kind of a red flag for us here in Canada to, to keep an eye out and make sure those same austerity um, measures were not necessarily implemented in the same way here in Canada if, if that was the direction they were going. Why, why, is, why are you not getting the help you need? Why are people in this province suffering, not just struggling, but suffering, going hungry or going cold or a combination of the two in the wintertime? Why? Um, you know, I don't know. I think that that's the most honest answer I can give you because I don't know who's making that decision to allow people. Is it is it the Ontario works rates that need to be raised? And you know now we've got a you know three year basic income pilot to to wait on for more change on that. Is it the utility companies and the fact that Hydro One has gone publicly traded and therefore needs to deal with their bad debt to, to be beholden to shareholders? But I've got shareholders with West Stereo Power as well because they're municipal shareholders. And oh dear, if if we don't act, you know, if we let people big up build up bad debt, we as the municipal owners get less of a payoff. You know, totally was watching what was happening with Toronto Hydro when they said, "Oh dear, Toronto City of Toronto, we're going to cut half of what our dividend is to you." Uh, well, no, we got to go back to that same taxpayer and get more money and and. You know, I don't know who the answer is. It is a, the employer who's precariously employing everybody, and we don't have real jobs anymore. Yeah. Well, I, we, I talked yesterday. Talked yesterday with a business owner who called in and said his electricity rates have gone up forty percent. I think thirty to forty percent, and it's impacting everything in his business. I asked for some uh, some listeners who are having difficulty paying their hydro bills to call in. Uh, Kelly is in. Flesherton. Hi, Kelly. Hi, hi. It's, I'm just sitting here right now, and I have my thermostat down to 10 degrees, and I keep it there all winter because I, I'm in a bachelor apartment, and I my hydro bill was like $300 for a bachelor apartment. So I just keep it down. I wear my snowmobile suit, and uh, I sit here in the cold for the entire winter. Kelly, you're in Flesherton, right? Yeah. Um, have you applied for the OESP? No, no. I okay. Mean, I could pay my hydro. I can, I can pay it if it's not three hundred dollars a month. Are you electrically heated? Yes. Yeah, that's the. That's and the, uh, the big problem is my brother used to work for a for a wind company. He put up the big wind things. Well, he worked out of Ontario. This company was in Ontario, and uh, oh, they got someone from another country to put up the wind the wind uh, projects up. Not even one from Ontario. This is corporatocracy. This is when the corporations control your government. The corporations come in and they tell the government what they want, and the government does it. I think this is treason, to be honest with Kelly, you. Kelly, what's what's the? Um, I mean, I'm I'm thinking there you are. You're sitting in a snowmobile suit. You're heating your apartment to ten degrees, which is fifty degrees Fahrenheit. Right. Which is cold. Um. And you have a $300 bill that you can't afford. No. And so the accounting department at the hydro company is making decisions about your life. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, what, uh, uh, Francesca, what, what, uh, what can Kelly do? Um, Kelly should do a couple of things. He um, should give us a shout here at the office um, uh, during work hours, Sunday not necessarily <laughs> being work hours, and call 211 as well because there is the OESP. If you qualify for that on your income basis, 
then um, you know that's thirty. Well, it's forty-five dollars a month right there uh, for the OESP, which would make a difference and enable you to raise the uh, the heat level. And then we can do uh, a full look and a full assessment. There's leap out there, so if you get behind, um, we've got some other programs. If you get behind, that we can help with. So we can do a a full strategy around your hydro. Look at uh, you know, will equal billing help you? manage the bill over time so you don't have these huge bills in winter well it's um, everybody i talk to i was just at my uh the meat uh, my butchers and he's i'm standing at the counter and he's holding a bill in his hand he goes my bills are eight thousand dollars he says they're going to bankrupt me yeah we've lost so many businesses in the, the bruce gray area i know a friend of mine lost hers uh this summer and and the hydro was part of the problem and uh, we're seeing more and more of this um this uh summer with uh the, the heat the hottest, you know, the hottest summer on record. Anybody who had air conditioning, you know, ice cream dealers, anybody who had any of that stuff, um, has just been pounded with their uh, hydro bills. This summer. Yeah, and I really Kelly, Kelly, let me ask you, Kelly, may, may I ask you a question? That three hundred dollars bill that you get for hydro, this is this is while you're heating your home only to ten degrees. Yeah, actually, when I heated it to a normal temperature, like about eighteen to twenty, uh, my hydro bill is four hundred. So and this I, is for a bachelor apartment. Yeah, a bachelor. If you had an apportunity. opportunity to say something to the premier about her mistake, what would you say to her? <laughs> mistake. Right. How about she spends 24 hours or 48 hours in your shoes and moves into your apartment oh, for oh, 48 hours and lives your life for 48 hours and you move into her digs for 48 hours? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I'd like to see her bank account. I, how much does the premier oh, make a year? And see a lot, if she's a lot. got okay. a lot more money in her account. Kelly, where's that coming from? Call Francesca Dobbins' office, the uh, United Way, Gray uh, Bruce County, Bruce Gray, right? I will. My mind's not working now. Yeah. My mind's frozen on me. No Bruce matter Gray what, County. anybody across Ontario and in certain parts of Canada can access resources by calling 211 at any time, 24 hours, seven days a week, and find out about all these programs. All right, Kelly, thank, thank you, you for the much. call, sir. Thank you. And I, I, God, it's not nearly enough to wish him the best. I mean, this is Ontario, as you said. What can we do to help you? What can people listening to this program right now who say, I have to, I have to do something, what can they do? Um, donate. I'm, I'm going to be really bluntly honest. Um, we're running really tight. We're coming into year-end. Um, I've been looking at the budget and having a mild and wild panic attacks um, because we were doing so much work on the energy file. You know, I'm not able to go out there and do the schmooze to get the donors in um, as much as I, I need to to get the donations in. So people can go to donatetoday.ca and just make a general donation to the United Way to support the work we're doing around these issues. Um, one of the things, Kelly, you know, talking about Kelly and, and his situation, one of the things we're starting to see with uh, people in uh, slightly bigger um, living arrangements is they're blocking them off. So if they're in a two-story house, they'll block off the top and they'll live on the main floor. We're seeing mold now. So we're seeing other issues prop up because they've turned the heat off in certain parts of the house and then it's fluctuating with the outside temperatures and we're getting mold. And, you know, now we need to try and figure out how we're going to do mold remediation in these homes. So, you know, there's lots of opportunities to reduce consumption, but at the same time, it's it's got to be reasonable, and we shouldn't have to be walling off rooms with blankets and sleeping bags. God bless uh, you, and thank you for what you do. You're really amazing. <laughs> you really are. Thank you. You're I really just, amazing. Yeah. You're, you're, you are. 
Francesca Dobbin, the executive director of the United Way, Bruce Gray County, and it's donatetoday.ca. Yeah, it's really simple, and it's totally mobile-friendly. Okay. Well, donatetoday.ca, and uh, we'll deal with the premier's mistake on Election Day, I'm sure. Um, I want to ask you to comment. Thank you, Francesca. Thank you for making yourself available today and uh, for being such a fighter for the people uh, of Ontario. Thank you. Well, thank you for the opportunity to talk to your listeners and talk to you about these issues. And, mm-hmm. and people need to understand this is not just a low-income issue. Um, no. This is an issue across all of Ontario. And our, our movers, our shakers, our, our community leaders are all stressed about this. Um, our municipal people, yeah. you know, our arenas, everything about us, about our community, about what it says about who we are. Yeah. We're, we, you and I will definitely be talking again and again. Thank you, Francesca. All right. Thank you. Francesca Dobbin, Bruce Gray County, United Way, donatetoday.ca. Premier Wynn, you've made a mistake. Fix it. Fix it. But the problem is, uh, as I read in Professor Ross McKittrick's column, is you can't because the contract is signed and the hydro rates are going to continue to go up. I know you're going to drop some, lower some taxes and lower and pass some of the expenses on to urban Ontarians from, uh, from, that's just so disturbing. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Mike Mosetti is a fighter. He's fighting for his son, Justin, and he's fighting from the immunity therapy clinic in Tijuana, Mexico. Where 17-year-old Justin is struggling with brain cancer. They went there for therapy, for treatment, DMSO treatment, and it's uh, there been some remarkable developments. Justin's weight has gone up. Um, he's 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 up on his feet. He's he's exercising, and uh, and, and and Mike, great to talk to you again. And Justin, good to speak with you uh, again. And the MRI, Mike, tell us about the MRI. Help me out here, please. Will you please? Uh, go ahead, Mike. Tell, tell me about the MRI. Sorry about that. Oh, yeah, the MRI was fantastic news. Um, the doctors were, were hoping for stability. We actually got slight improvement in the MRI, which after a month of treatment, uh, they found um, amazing themselves. Um, so it's, it's just wonderful news. And... Uh, and, and how, what's Justin? Uh, what, what what's he doing now? Like I, I had an email that he's lifting weights, like five pound weights. Justin is, yeah, he's doing physio, and part of the physio is lifting five pound weights. And yes, he's walking. He's walking up and down a couple of stairs. He's actually doing some of his soccer steps that he did in practice. Um, it's difficult because he's he's blind, but it's amazing what he's doing. Yeah. Tell us, uh, Mike, please, compare how Justin is today to the day he arrived at the clinic. Oh, late in day. Uh, he was laid up in bed, bedridden. Um, he, he, he couldn't move that much in bed. His, he wasn't drinking. He wasn't eating. Um, it was just horrible. Uh, he was having one to two seizures a day. All that has ended. But your need is great. And your need uh, is, is has been ignored or at least rejected by the Ontario Health Insurance Plan and the government of Ontario. Um, 
talk to us about the reality of what you're facing, Mike. Well, the reality is uh, every week I'm paying over $13,700 Canadian dollars a week, and uh, I'm going to run out of money. Uh, we have a wonderful go, uh, a GoFundMe that wonderful people um, are, are contributing to it, but it can't keep up with the, the amount of money I'm paying. So I will run out of money soon. Uh, at that point, I'll have no choice but to bring Justin home, and um, he won't receive the treatment, and he will die. Um, has the clinic given any estimate how long Justin might need to be there? It could. Well, for, certainly we're going to be here another month. Or two. Okay. Um, this could take months for Justin yeah. to, um, you know, for, for him to go to full remission. Understand so that. Even they don't know at this point. Yeah, but the, the the government will not assist you financially in the clinic in Tijuana, but they were willing to pay to put Justin in the hospital in Hamilton, and uh, and uh, use chemotherapy, which they told you was useless. That's right. The doctors told Justin and I that the chemo will not work, but they were willing to give up chemo and have a hospital bed for him, and the taxpayer would fund that. Yet they won't pay for the treatment that has clearly been working up till now. I don't understand the Premier. I don't understand the Ontario government. Well, the Premier just admitted that she made a mistake with the electricity file. Maybe somebody there will admit they made a mistake with you. Wouldn't that be nice? I'd love to have the advocate that you had on uh, your previous guest uh, to be working for me. I mean, we need somebody like that, someone like yourself, to uh, to continue to publicize this. Well, you know you've got me on your side. Uh, oh, absolutely. I know that. And so it's the, the everybody who's listening now, again, Justin is 17 years of age. He's fighting a very rare and, and deadly brain cancer. They tried to get treatment for him here, and uh, nothing was going to work. They were going to put him in the hospital, going to put give him chemotherapy. The doctor said it wasn't going to work, so Justin was going to die. So Mike looks around for where he can help his son, finds the immunity therapy clinic in Tijuana, Mexico. I know some people will say, well, that's Mexico. What do you know? You know, I can't take your families there because that stuff doesn't work. Look at – that's what some people would say. Look at look at what you're hearing from, from Mike, from his dad. He's put on, what, 20 pounds or is it 40 pounds? He's put on 40 pounds. 40 pounds. He's put on 40 pounds. He's on his feet. He's exercising. Uh, he's, he's, this MRI is showing some slight improvement. All the signs are where you would want them to be. But yeah. Mike, but Mike Masati and his family are going to run out of money. It's costing them $13,700 a week. If it was your son, if it was your family member, you'd be doing exactly what the Masatis did, and that is raise 200000 bucks. But the money's going to run out, and the province isn't providing any assistance because they say it's an experimental treatment. Um, it's, it's so sad, Roy. It is, Mike. It is. Well, we can help. We can go um, to your GoFundMe page. I, I'm going to be. I'm going. I'm going to the page before I leave the radio station, um, and uh, and I hope the province steps up. I really do. I really do. I really do. Unfortunately, the province, this is affecting one person, and, you know, they really believe it's not affecting the whole province. And I guess they just don't care about one person. I don't know what it is. 
But after listening to what was happening with the people with their hydro rates, yeah. obviously they don't care about anybody in the province. Mike, we will stay in touch with you, and uh, and we'll continue to hear from you, and we'll continue to press the government. In the meantime, there's the GoFundMe page, and there's the added incentive and impetus knowing that Justin is doing better. Thanks to you both, and God bless you guys. Thank you, Roy. Talk to you soon. Mike Masati in uh, Tijuana, Mexico. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.